Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to Lab Talk with Laura. Uh, today, my guests are Destiny Knock and Hannah Jollis. Destiny is a recent PhD, what's the word? Um, it says PhD candidate on my thing, but I'm like, that's not right. Yeah, I guess PhD holder. <laughs> I'm not sure. Destiny just defended her PhD, so she's officially a doctor, right? Yeah. Des- Dr. Knock. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, All right. Uh, she, she obtained her PhD in the industrial engineering department here. She also has a master's of science in leadership for sustainable development and is the founder of the blog PhDing, in which she offers advice on graduate school and professional development. Um, she's originally from Maryland, and her research focuses on renewable energy planning, energy policy, and engineering for social good. Thanks for joining us, Destiny. She's good at tennis, too. <laughs> <laughs> also joining us today is Hannah Jollis, who is a PhD student in mechanical engineering, also an NSF graduate research fellow. Uh, also, Destiny is, too, it says in the notes. Um, <laughs> Destiny and Hannah are both uh, co-chairs of the Graduate Women in STEM Outreach Committee. Um, Hannah's originally from Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, Mm -hmm. and she has her BA in physics from McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, and she uses computer simulations of airflow patterns in offshore wind farms to explore ways to make those wind farms more effective. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, Also joining us, my co-host today is Kim DeShields, a.k.a. Boney, the (laughs) host of Sunday Night Bishop's Lounge Comedy, also a local producer with Comedy is a Weapon. Did I get it all? Do you want to say anything else, Kim? I'm fabulous. Do you have any shit? <laughs> that is very true. Um, so maybe we'll start with Destiny. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to just go ahead and tell us about your research. So my research really focuses on two areas. The first is in New England, and it's looking at how do you measure the sustainability of the entire power system? So incorporating different mixes of power plants and ranking those mixes in terms of costs, air pollution emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, jobs, um, and water consumption. And so what I've done is I've created a mathematical model that allows you to kind of answer this question of, well, if you have a power system that's like 50% natural gas, 50% wind, and you have another one that's 50% natural gas, 50% solar, which one would be more sustainable? And I have that in the context of the New England power system. Um, the second one is really focused on the global south, or um, most people call them the developing countries. So it's set in the context of Liberia. And what I've done there is there's this goal by the United Nations to reach universal access to electricity by 2030. Mm-hmm. But the question is, what path should different countries take to get there and what kind of paths are available? And what I've done is I've incorporated this variable called a stakeholder's preference for equality. And so then using this mathematical model, you can show how a stakeholder's preference for equality would impact the way that they would build different power systems. So it's really moving away from the older method, which was like a least cost uh, method where people would project demand and then build the grid. And now it's kind of taking a more opportunistic approach towards power system planning. Okay. Wow. I know it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to decide where should we like start because <laughs> there's a lot there. <laughs> um, 
Maybe let's focus on this. Wait, can you say it again? Stakeholders? Preference for equality. Okay. So, for example, you have two different people. One cares a ton about equality. They want everybody to have equal access to electricity. Um, but then you have another person who doesn't care at all about equality, and they just want to maximize the amount of electricity in the country. So if you have the person that doesn't care at all, um, what you kind of see in the model is that they will build very large power plants near the very large cities because that's where most of the people are. But if you have the person that really does care about equality, then they incorporate the rural communities more. So they might give them more decentralized solar home systems. They would build out more transmission lines and export some of that power from the large cities into more of the rural communities. So you could kind of say that less people get left in the dark, in a sense. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. Or literally. Yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And so what are some of the, I guess, other implications of those different ways of distributing electricity? Are there, are there other, I don't know, impacts besides just who has it and who doesn't? Yes, you could think that it's an impact on the cost of actually reaching universal access, right? It's one thing to say that we want everybody to have universal access, but it's another thing to actually have it. <laughs> um, and so you can actually make the case for having an equitable path of electricity planning, right? Um, in terms of just, like, you know, it's going to be really expensive to bring an entire country electricity or to provide or to build out a power system for an entire country. But you can actually make the case that you should kind of take the equitable path as you go, because if you're making investments in transmission lines from the very beginning, then that will make it easier to either upgrade those lines to just keep expanding um, than if you only invest in large power plants at the beginning, and then you needed to retroactively add in some of these transmission lines and then resize your power plants. Mm. So will it happen? Everybody will have electricity? That's the target. Um, I think if you believe it, you can achieve it. That's, my, that's the take I normally uh, try to employ. So I think that it can happen because there, it's not like we don't have enough technology, right? There's decentralized solar home systems. There's utility scale solar that's very modular. Um, there's lots of hydro power advancements and just other types of technologies that you can use to reach universal access. What's the target date? 2030. I'm not sure if it'll happen by 2030. I think that's a very okay. lofty target, um, just because it also takes a number of years to build out a power system. Normally, these things are planned on like a 30-year mm. time period, <laughs> and given that it's almost 2020 and they, the target was by 2030, I'm not exactly sure that 10 years would be enough to dep just to even build enough solar panels to reach universal access. Mm. Do you know if people are like, they're already working on it though, or is it still kind of very much in the planning stages in a lot of countries? Oh, there's a ton of people working on reaching this target. Mm -hmm. I mean, once the United Nations said something, you know, people <laughs> just kind of rally. <laughs> so, but yeah, there's a ton of research going on in this field. Um, I know like even at UMass, there was um, like Jay Tanasia, he is a professor in the electrical engineering department. He is working on a lot of um, kind of Global South targets and kind of looking at planning. There's a lot of work going on at Carnegie Mellon. They have like a lot of energy institutes, and there's one professor there, Paulina Yarmio, who does a lot of work in like the Global South. And they also have a Carnegie has a campus in 
um, Rwanda, mm. where they talk about a lot of these issues too. So there is a lot of work going on, and those are just two people, right, out of two, at two universities, and there's so many universities across the world, and just companies that are being built around, you know, like how do you build out electricity systems in a fair way, in an equitable way, but also cost-effective way. You, you brought up Carnegie Mellon. Do you want to share your news about? Oh, yeah. So in the fall, I will be a postdoc in the Entering Public Policy Department at Carnegie Mellon. Woo. And yeah, and then in fall 2020, this will transfer over to an assistant professor position wow. in that same department. Go so there, I'm really girl. excited to start my All job right. there. Yeah. <laughs> So there will be two people at Carnegie you know, I'm working on that, right? <laughs> yeah, so there will be two. <laughs> You'll keep working on this kind of project when you go there? Or? Yeah, so I plan to continue working on energy planning research in both the U.S. and in um, the Global South. Wow. Well, all right. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, will I'm really excited. Will you be playing excited. tennis there, too? Yeah, probably. All right. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> There's some background that the audience doesn't have here, which is that... Cam and Destiny see each other playing tennis. <laughs> That's all I got. I just feel like they should be informed. We're going to keep referencing tennis. I won't, I promise. I, I don't know. I feel like it's right for analogies, right? Yeah. Like, I don't... Um, my tennis lingo is like subpar. Love, love. I don't, yeah, that's all I got. Yeah. And then also building back on your question about like work being done. So actually on August 12th, I'm going to Ghana with 11 other researchers. So there's Aaron Baker from UMass. There's Leonce, um, who's in the uh, economics school from UMass too. And there's some researchers from the University of Ghana, University of Cape Town, and University of Nairobi. And we're going to go to Ghana to host a stakeholder workshop. Um, specifically looking at electricity planning, thinking about listing stakeholders' preferences for different targets in electricity planning in Ghana for now, but we also talked about expanding it to like Kenya and South Africa. So that's also really exciting to me because, you know, getting a group of energy stakeholders together doesn't always happen, but that we have a grant to do it is something that's really exciting too. That's nice. awesome. Wow. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. All right. So when you say energy stakeholders, um, like who are you talking about? So there would be the nonprofits that are coming in wanting to kind of supply solar panels, for example, or energy intensive equipment to hospitals. Okay. There are the chiefs of the um, local communities, right, that are the leaders in their community. There would be the energy ministers in the government um, sector. And then there would be the power company owners and operators there. And then the like the transmission line company operators. Okay. So really just everybody who has anything to do with it is coming together to talk yeah. about it. Do you have, um, I guess, like opinions or would you weigh in about like the different energy sources and like what do you think are the best ones and what do you think <laughs> we need to like move on from? Or maybe you don't have opinions about that. I, yeah. um, so, <laughs> I mean, too. since I started my, I guess, energy career doing renewable energy, I do tend to lean more towards the renewables and away from like coal and oil. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that in general, solar is really good, wind is really good when you have the resources available. So in some countries, wind just doesn't make sense because the wind resource isn't there. Um, Do you mean just wind? Yeah, like it's, it's <laughs> like just, not just not that windy. Wind. Okay. <laughs> it's just not that windy. I just want to clarify. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're all talking over this here. Like, all the new. wind resource, you're like, no, like it just isn't windy. <laughs> yeah, it's just well, not I understand. Windy. You know, every discipline has their own way of like speaking about things, and I'm just like, 
let me just make sure. I know, like, I think you're saying just win, but let me just make sure. Yeah, okay. it's good for you to keep me in check, too. Um, yeah, so the win just sometimes isn't as strong, right? Okay, so in that the, just doesn't in those make countries. sense. So it doesn't yeah. make sense. Um, I think that hydro is really good, but, you know, if you over-rely on hydro, then you're going to impact fish populations, you're going to impact farming and agriculture. Um, you know, nuclear is one of those things that comes in and out of favor, but it is the only technology that has to actually account for the cost of getting rid of its waste, mm. whereas oil and coal plants don't have to do that um, until we have a carbon tax, which some people are in favor of. And then solar, I think, is really good, especially for the global south. So I don't have a preference for one technology. I just like the idea of using all the technologies that we have better together. I prefer hydro myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Is there a reason? Well, it just smokes better than the other stuff. <laughs> but Okay. That's interesting you brought up the way that um, hydropower affects fish populations because that came up last week in my interviews. I talked to Leon Guo, who studies fish populations in the Connecticut River, and she said she has to go down to Connecticut because like, Holy- the Holyoke Dam just stops all of the river herring from getting anywhere north of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also, like, if you're using pumped hydro storage, which is kind of a giant battery, I guess I would say, or similar to a giant battery, then you might actually reverse the flow of the river when you're pumping water from the bottom lake to the upper lake. So there's also that type of issue, too, confusing the fish, right? Whoa. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, do you want to explain what that is, pumped hydro storage? I know what it is because I visited a place that does it, but it was, like, mind-blowing to me when I went because I didn't know what it was until I visited Yeah, so a lot of people right now are talking about energy storage as a way to assist bringing more renewables to the power grid. So with pumped hydro storage, you would have essentially two lakes, one at the bottom of a hill, one at the top of a hill. When there is an overproduction of electricity and we just have too much, we would use that extra electricity to pump water from the bottom lake up to the upper lake and store it as potential energy. Then when you want to supply energy or electricity to the grid, you would release the water from the upper lake through a tube, which has a turbine inside that will turn as the water passes over it, and that generates electricity back to the grid, and then the water flows into the bottom lake. So that is essentially a very large power grid battery or storage mechanism. Nice. Yeah. So as you can imagine, when you're pumping, if you're using the river as the lower lake okay then if you're taking water out of that river then you would reverse the flow you could reverse the flow of the river okay definitely seems important to think about yeah it's just one of the things (laughs) yeah that's so cool though i i when i visited one i was like this is so cool you just use a lake as a battery (laughs) i don't know that kind of blew my mind (laughs) but yeah i think it's pretty cool because i feel like it's one of the the older more established storage technologies especially for electricity like there are established facilities that have been doing this for years and years and years and so i think it's kind of cool to say like oh no it's not this like pie in the sky dream like they're built and they've been running for a long time Mm -hmm. yeah and it's also cool to even just know what some of the environmental implications of it are right because they've been around for so long there's also talk of like you know having these very large grid size batteries that are kind of like the batteries i guess in your phone or that you'd use for a remote but they're just gonna be much larger on a grid scale, but then there's kind of uncertainty around the implications of having so many of these chemical batteries. Okay, so like just ginormous chemical batteries. Yeah. Okay, so then like waste might become another concern with that. Right. 
but it's still new, so maybe it won't. Okay. <laughs> maybe it will. Maybe it'll have um, a really smart way to deal with it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Huh. I didn't, yeah, another thing I remember when I visited the, like, pumped storage facility was that they talked about, like, some types of electricity are just generated constantly, and you can't really, st- you know, you don't get to choose when it's generated, but people want electricity just during the day, mostly. Yeah, people want to turn on their lights when they're ready to turn on their lights. Yeah. And um, if you're generating electricity using wind, for example, then if the wind's not blowing, you don't have electricity. Well, people aren't necessarily the most thrilled about not having electricity <laughs> when it's not a windy day. <laughs> yeah. We can create or generate wind, though, right? If you blow hard enough, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So um, maybe we could shift and talk about the New England project. Okay. Um, I'm curious. So you said you created a model of all of the different balances of the different types of electricity. I'm sorry. I'm trying to understand okay. it. So I'll re-explain it. Yeah, I'll re-explain so it. So okay. it's a... That'd be great. Thank you. <laughs> So the New England project is a mathematical model, which has two parts. The first is an electricity model, and the second is a sustainability model. So what you do is you start with a mix of power plants on your system. So maybe you have five nuclear, three wind farms, two solar, and some oil. So then you would run that through your electricity model and first determine if it's reliable, which just means can we supply electricity to meet our demand for the, an entire year or a different time period. Okay. So if it is reliable, then the next thing you want to do is you want to say, okay, well, how much electricity did each different technology generate? So then you would take the information of how many plants you had and how much each, how much electricity each technology generated, and you'd feed that into a sustainability model. So the sustainability model will calculate the expected greenhouse gas emissions, air pollution, the number of jobs that might have been created from building additional power plants, the cost of building and operating these different power plants, and a couple of other metrics. And so you can actually use this to say, okay, well, now we're going to compare 20 different combinations of power plants. We want to compare them in terms of their sustainability. So my model would allow you to do that. Nice. So... Do you, did you start with like what already exists in New England, I'm assuming? Yeah. And then are you trying to help plan for the future? Yeah, it's okay. really like what should we build? What yeah. will, how will this impact our sustainability in New England? Um, so start with the base case and then we said, okay, well, let's have a high offshore wind portfolio. Mm-hmm. Then we say, well, let's have high offshore wind and high natural gas, high offshore wind, high nuclear. And then we could do, you know, a high solar, high nuclear, high solar, high wind type of thing. So then you can just keep comparing them. One of the interesting things that we found is that if you converted all of your oil plants to natural gas plants, it really doesn't make you that much better in terms of overall sustainability. The scores actually rank pretty similarly. And it's because of the, you know, the... You save on cost, but you still are getting relatively high greenhouse gas emissions compared to if you had invested a lot more in renewable energy. Mm. That seems important right now because I feel like there's been a big push as like natural gas is clean energy and it's kind of interesting. I don't know. I feel like I've heard that. Have other people heard that? And I've always been kind of skeptical. I also like I was living in upstate New York when they were like kind of there was a big political fight over fracking and like gas exploration and so that kind of you know I feel like there was kind of a hidden side to that argument that natural gas was a lot better than like coal or something like that when it didn't account for maybe 
the intensity of the methods. I don't know mm-hmm. if you have thoughts on that. So I know that there is a big debate on whether or not natural gas should be used as the stepping stone towards a high renewable future. Um, right now, the cost is really low, so it's very attractive. But as you get a more natural gas dominated system, then it would be more sensitive to changes in the price of natural gas, which mm. a lot of people are also worried about, given that we have such high natural gas prices in New England. Um, and I think that if the goal is to transition to a high renewable future, then we should just do that, yeah. not necessarily use these stepping stones, because also with power plants, typically they have like 20 year contracts. Right. So would you really want to wait 20 more years until you can step off of a fossil fuel plant? Um, So that's just some of my preferences. (laughs) Yeah. So what did your model show? Like, what do you have? Do you have like a recommendation? Like, this is exactly how much solar wind or. So the model showed that the most ideal case, if the New England power system wanted to keep a largely diversified mix of power plants, then it would be to have a high offshore wind with the base level of nuclear that they already have on their system. Um, Because nuclear is a kind of carbon-free power plant. And so if you retired your nuclear power plants before you retired your coal or oil plants, then you would actually have more greenhouse gas emissions in the meantime until you were able to transition out the oil. Um, So you should actually transition out the oil first and then retire your nuclear after the oil. Okay. Did you give them your recommendation? I published the paper. Oh, no. (laughs) Are they going to do it? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I think I need to talk to more people in the New England region. Okay. But, you know, first I wanted to just show, like, that the model can look at different electricity features. And then moving forward, it would be now talking with stakeholders and actually understanding would they use the model, what do they need from the model to make it feasible in their eyes, and then adapting it. So it's an iterative process. What does that mean for me as a homeowner? Like, when if, you know, moving to your model, like, does that mean that my bills are going to go down, way down? Or what does it mean, cleaner air? Like, what does it mean? What, how does that translate to me, like, to the everyday person? Like, what does it mean? So I think it would mean cleaner air. Okay. So if you were to retire your nuclear plants before your oil, then the oil would actually need to work more to support the high offshore wind. And so that would mean like more emissions, so maybe dirtier air. Mm. Whereas if you retire your oil plants first, since nuclear is a kind of carbon-free emitter, we would actually have less air pollution in the meantime until we could keep transitioning out some of our more fossil fuel plants. Gotcha. I feel like I get, I also work in renewable energy and so I get asked the question about the price a lot and I'm like, it's not, it's a complicated question, right? Because you can have the government step in with like some kind of incentives or subsidies and that will really affect the electricity price and it also depends on what's happening in the market. Like if everyone decides to go renewables or like to concentrate their renewables more than that will have a different effect on the price if it's just one company out there like soldiering on introducing a bunch of renewables and relying on renewables okay gotcha yeah yeah because offshore wind is pretty expensive in the u.s right now but that's just because we only have one offshore wind farm and there's this economies of scale with as the more wind turbines you deploy and build in the u.s the cheaper it gets because there's more competition and then competition will drive that price down so then your electricity prices could get cheaper 
How did you um, end up in this area of research? Well, I studied abroad in Malawi. That was my first study abroad ever, and I, I absolutely loved it. So I was over there to teach girls how to sew reusable feminine pads because a lot of them were dropping out when they hit puberty. And it was just because over there, it was essentially like the same, um, buying enough pads for an entire year was essentially the cost of sending a girl to high school for half a year, right? So wow. the family just wouldn't invest in it. So then if you can teach them how to sew reusable feminine pads out of like old t-shirts and towels, they actually said it made a huge difference in the school the second year when we did a follow-up where the number of students going to high school from this primary school I worked at increased by 80 percent wow and it was all girls right just because as you can imagine um, if you're in a situation where paper is really expensive and you you know take home homeworks are not a thing then missing three to five days of school a month would make a huge impact in just your ability to learn and to, to do this knowledge. So while I was there, I felt like very like empowered because I had, you know, kind of gone on the ground, asked the teachers in the school, like, would this project be acceptable? You know, how can I make this culturally relevant for you? And like, you know, do the girls really need this? And so that was my first kind of attempt at project development and doing like what they call participatory action research. And then when I was over there, you know, I was an electrical engineering major in undergrad, so I had wanted to do some electricity project. But when I got there, I saw like there are lights in the school. You know, there are there's a one computer, but the problem is the lights just aren't on, and it's just not being managed as well as it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I got I experienced my first rolling blackout, <laughs> where the government said we were going to lose all of our electricity on Thursday which actually happened on Friday, right after I had just paid for the internet. So all of my money that I hadn't paid for, for the like 30 minutes of internet was gone. Um, and there's no way to get it back because the blackout just happened. And I was just like, why is this happening in 2012? So that made me kind of think that for grad school and like my career, I wanted to look at international development, but I also wanted to look at how do you manage power systems better and how do you use the technologies that you currently have in a better way. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Nice. So what is um what is like the process of getting this PhD been like for you? Ooh, it's been a roller coaster. <laughs> I'm sure Hannah Hannah knows very well. We were roommates for like the first like two years. Mm-hmm. So we got to see each other like move from like freshman year of PhD to sophomore year of PhD, junior, senior year. Um, Through the laughter and the tears. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the PhD, at first, I my first year I started, it was kind of like under, I was treating it like undergrad. I was working all the time. Uh, felt like I was getting nowhere. And then somebody just told me, hey, where's the fire? There's never been a fire in research unless you're a fire engineer. (laughs) And I was just like, wait, what? And they were just like, why are you killing yourself when the research is never going to stop? So you need to make sure that you are working in a sustainable way. So then I, I started this process of trying to optimize my life to reach my maximum level of success. <laughs> Did you make a model of like how much yeah. time to spend on each thing? I actually 
um, religiously use my Google Calendar now, and I track how much time it takes me to do each task. And I'm a big supporter of Google Calendar. Wow. So a lot of things are scheduled so that I don't miss people. But a couple of my friends used to get annoyed with me because if they said they wanted to hang out on Friday, I would block out three hours on Friday <laughs> and be like, okay, cool, we're hanging out on Friday. And they were like, why are you overscheduling me? But I never missed hanging out with them again right <laughs> so they were also happy about that um but yeah so it was just kind of like a journey of you know trying to do something that's never been done before right trying to figure out what information is already out there finding the information on the vast internet like you know search engines and then also trying to make sure i'm doing stuff that's meaningful to me right because research is such a long time horizon that for me, what really drove me to get a PhD was I wanted to be a teacher. And kind of in the middle, I started to lose my way a little bit with just the bad advice of, oh, getting a job in academia is so tough. You're never going to be able to be a professor. You know, just people giving you advice that aren't actually professors. And you're like, why am I listening to these people? (laughs) (laughs) Then um, that's when I joined. I became more active in the Graduate Women in STEM or GWIS. And I joined the outreach committee. And I found that just going and talking to middle school students, that was something that really kind of reminded me why I started the PhD in the first place. I started painting more just because reading for fun is not as fun when you have to read all day at work, right? So then I just would paint like all the colors and whatever I painted didn't look like what I was trying to paint, so I just called it abstract and (laughs) kept it moving. But yeah, the PhD definitely showed me how to do research. It showed me kind of how to keep a work-life balance, which I just define as operating below your burnout zone (laughs) like whatever that is for you Um, for me it's trying to only work eight to ten hours a day for other people it's you know 12 hours a day but my burnout zone kind of happens at the 10 hour mark Mm -hmm. and then keeping up my hobbies right making sure I put myself first and so that's why I do tennis and I like to go to the gym a lot and I still hang out with my friends right because I just kind of view the PhD as this like mountain that you're climbing and when you're like so looking at that trail, you don't realize like all the th- all the views that you're missing as you're climbing this mountain and you kind of, you know, pause maybe halfway and you realize that most of the people that you started climbing this mountain with aren't there. Maybe you lost touch with some of your friends. You haven't been able to go out as much. You kind of lost, you know, some of yourself. And then you kind of think to yourself, well, I don't want to be at the top of this mountain by myself. Mm. And then you start reinvesting in your relationships and you're trying to find this balance as you keep going. And then because you've now reinvested in these relationships, these people can like help pull you and keep you going. Right. Because you're you're not in the Ph.D. alone. Wow. Awesome. My burnout zone like registers in minutes, mm-hmm. I think now. <laughs> cool. Well, and so you just started a blog in January, right? To yeah. maybe talk about some of these things. Yeah, so the blog is called PhD Ingot and it's on my personal website, which can be found at www.destinyknock.com. Just make sure you spell my name right. <laughs> and like cuz a lot of people were asking me some of the some similar things like what's it like being the only African American in your PhD or the only African American female um they were just asking me questions like well what's your advice for success or how do you stay motivated so i started the blog to kind of keep all that information in one place because i felt like 
a lot of times people were wanting to know similar things because I mean people told me I finished the PhD quickly and because I finished in four years mm-hmm. to me it didn't feel quick because <laughs> <laughs> this is my 10th year of college education you know yeah. but then you kind of look back and you're like well if people want you know my opinion then I'd rather them have my opinion than a bunch of other bad opinions that I felt like I got sometimes along <laughs> <the way>. right on <laughs> nice yeah, it seems like your opinion is uh, it's worked out because you have a job already. <laughs> You're not even gone and you already have a job set up. So, yeah, I would like your advice, too. <laughs> You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMU Amherst. My guests today are Destiny Knock and Hannah Jollis. My co-host is comedian Kim DeShields. Uh, you can check out Destiny's blog at destinyknock.com. That's D-E-S-T-E-N-I-E. N-O-C-K dot com. And while you're online, you should also check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, on SoundCloud, uh, Twitter, and iTunes, and any other podcast app that you use. Okay, let's jump back into it. Cool. Um, Well, I think it might be a good time to move on and talk to Hannah, unless there's anything else that didn't come up about your research that you want to, like, highlight or touch on. Nope. Hannah's turn. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Hannah. Hello. (laughs) Tell us about your research. Um, so yeah, I do computer simulations of the airflow patterns in offshore wind farms. Um, so I specifically look at kind of how the wind flows through a farm for turbines that are mounted on floating platforms. So platforms that are out there bobbing in the ocean. Um, and if you're thinking about a wind farm, right, so you have many turbines placed in fairly close proximity to each other. Um, so what happens with the wind flow through that is you get the wind encounters maybe like the first turbine and the first turbine's like cool perfectly like fairly smooth wind it's like a great resource let's use it and then it extracts energy from that wind to turn into electricity but then the wind keeps going and it hits a second turbine that's downwind and that second turbine's like wait it's there's less energy in this wind now so you took it out of the first one you've also kind of like mixed all that air up and it's really like choppy and we call it turbulence Um, If you have encountered that on an airplane, you know how unpleasant that can be. So the downwind turbine is experiencing that kind of choppy, turbulent air as well as lower energy air. Um, And so that can really affect how much power it can produce. And it also affects the forces on that downwind turbine. Um, So as an engineer, I try to figure out how that airflow through a farm in between the upstream turbines and the downstream turbines, how that all place together and how it affects um, the design of the turbines as well as the power that um, a, the farm overall can produce. Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that seems really complicated. It, it is a very complicated um, kind of system. It's, 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 I work in fluid dynamics, again, okay. so that's the airflow kind of modeling. Um, and that, I think, is one of the more mathematically intense fields in engineering. Um, so it's been a real adventure learning both the computer side of it, right? I have to know like the programming and kind of just how to use computers really effectively for the computer simulation part of it. But I also have to know like all the math and equations that go into the, the fluid dynamics part of it. As wow. Well. Nice. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, I feel like a question that's come up about wind energy that when it, when it comes up in general settings is people say like, could you use up all the wind? Like, could all the wind be taken away? If you built, like, if you built like a lot of wind turbines, could you in theory just like stop the wind? 
I think that it would be really hard to stop it overall, but there are people who are doing these kind of simulations, again, fluid dynamics simulations of um, a bunch of wind farms placed in over a very large area. So it's unlikely that you're going to stop the wind overall, like within a farm or right in front of a farm. Okay. But you can actually start to change the wind flow patterns in a region if you have enough closely packed turbines. So if you're like, for instance, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Like that would take a lot of wind farms. You'd have to like blanket like either the entire land or like a lot of the sea, um, the sea area to really start affecting it at that level. Um, but I know people are concerned, and so you don't—you you not only have the issue of siting single individual turbines within a farm, but you also have the question of how to site farms next to each other, okay. so they don't interfere with each other too much, and they don't like start disrupting the overall airflow. Interesting. Um, then again, there's all the other considerations, right? Like the environmental impacts of putting a farm there. You don't want it to disrupt the marine habitat or the bird habitat if it's on land in particular. Um, too much and you want to make sure that it's not too close to people's houses or it's not too close to fishing or shipping areas if it's offshore. I'm blown away. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I think Destiny brought up that there's only one offshore wind farm in the U.S. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, it's um, the Block Island Wind Farm. So it's just off of Block Island in Rhode Island. Um, and it's five turbines. It's a pilot project for the company that's developed it. And they're, they're planning on building a larger farm also in New England, but that was kind of like the first pilot project just to get like the word out there that yes, we can do offshore wind in the US as well. Um, there's a lot of offshore wind um, internationally. Um, Europe in particular um, has built that out pretty extensively. Um, so they're kind of the experts in offshore wind right now. Um, and the US market is really just starting to play catch up a little bit and start developing and expanding the offshore wind. Um, it's been really interesting because right there, there's really two kinds of offshore wind in my mind. There's um, fixed bottom platforms and floating platforms. So fixed bottom is where you have some kind of like solid structure that's bolted to the seabed or driven into the seabed. So it's like very firmly attached to the ocean floor. And then the floating platform is more like you have a, a floating bobbing up and down platform that the turbine sits on and then that's kind of anchored in place using um, mooring lines. Um, so the one that's off of Block Island and a lot of what's being done or what's already built internationally, um, those are all fixed bottom. Okay. It's kind of like a, an easy expansion from onshore wind turbines. You just take an onshore wind turbine, make the support structure a little bit longer and put it in the ocean. Okay. Um, so I think the floating is really kind of like the next big um, technology change for the wind energy market. I mean, there's always room to expand and improve both onshore technology and this fixed bottom technology. But I'm really interested to see where both of them go in the future. So do you model both of those? Um, currently, I'm focusing on the floating platform. Again, it's kind okay. of more of the cutting edge thing. And so yeah. that's what I do as a researcher in academia. Um, but I used to actually do simulations of waves impacting the fixed bottom ones. So you, if you're fixed bottom, you usually put them in shallower waters, which are closer to shore. And it's more likely to have these giant waves that come in and kind of break. Like if you think of breaking waves on a beach, um, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever surfed, I haven't, but I hear tell that when you get a breaking wave and it's really bad when you're surfing, you know, you get like slammed under. Yeah. So you can imagine that happening to this support structure 
and you need to make sure that you can build that support structure strong enough to withstand those forces. Wow. Has to be able to hang 10. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Surfing wind turbines. <laughs> it's a new idea. It seems like the, the so the, the advantage, what's the advantage of the um, not anchored ones? Yeah, so the floating ones, um, again, the fixed bottom ones are really only um, economically feasible. They're really only cheap enough if you build them in fairly shallow waters. Um, so if you want to build a farm, say, off the coast of California or around Hawaii or in some of the um, locations in the Pacific Ocean, you, the, the, the continental shelf drops off really quickly there. So the water's really deep, even close to land. So if you want to have a farm that can serve the high population centers in those areas, you need to um, basically build a floating turbine because otherwise you have this like really huge structure under the water and that's just not economically feasible to build that. It seems like it could throw in a lot of chaos though to have them floating. Like you talked about like the wind and like one after the other getting disrupted. And I'm yeah. like, that sounds complicated enough if they were standing still. Yeah. <laughs> so like add in like bobbing up and down. That's And that's exactly what my research right now is working on. So we, we have a decent idea of how the, the airflow patterns work for fixed bottom turbines. They're fairly similar to onshore ones, and we've been building those for years. Okay. Um, but the floating platforms, like there's only a few demo projects in the world right now. Okay. Um, so we don't really have a great idea of how they play with each other and how the turbines affect each other. So that's why I'm doing these simulations to try to answer. If you have, if you introduce that floating motion, how much more does it mess up the air and make it all choppy and turbulent compared to a fixed bottom case? Okay. So do you feel like there's a lot of hope, though, for those floating wind turbines? Like, do you I think do. they'll be successful? I think that there's definitely the opportunity to try it, right? I feel like one, one really important thing for me as someone who does computer simulations is to remember that it gives us a lot of good information, but nothing is going to match actually trying it out. Okay. So we do a lot of, like, of this computer simulation work um, up front to make our best guess and work on the design, but you always have to go and test it in the real world because there's just things that you never would have thought of that could happen. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the demo projects have been doing fairly well, um, and I think that with enough care in the engineering and enough interest from both the government and the public that I think it could really take off. Cool. So how did you end up doing this kind of work? Yeah. Um, well, I got my undergrad um, degree in physics, and that was partly because the college I went to did not have engineering, and so I was like, physics, close enough. Um, <laughs> and what I found out when I was an undergrad, I was like, all right, I seem to be doing okay with this math and science thing, and I think it's pretty fun. So I definitely want to do something like STEM-related going forward. But as I was going through my physics degree, I was like, all right, yeah, I'm down for like classical mechanics. Like I can think about that. I can touch it. It's like planets orbiting each other or like the forces. If you stack like a building together, like what are the forces that are going to happen like that? And I'm like, I'm down for that. Okay. And then we started getting into classes that were like electromagnetics. And I'm like, all right, like magnetism, electricity, it's a little bit harder to see, but like I can still conceptualize it. <laughs> it's really hard to see. And, then, and then we're hitting like quantum mechanics. And I'm just like, no, like, okay. I'm glad I took a semester in it. But like, I don't want to think about this the rest of my life. Like you can't, it's there and it's not there. Both things are true at the same time. And I'm like, mm -mm, I'm out. I want to, <laughs> I want to build something. I want to design something that I can, that's tangible. So that's really what drew me to engineering. 
And then I was also really concerned about climate change. And I was like, I would like my career to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. So I really wanted to work on something in renewable energy for that. So just kind of taking all those together. And then I took a class in fluid mechanics and I was like, hey, this is pretty cool. Like fluids are weird. They do weird things that are kind of unexpected. So I was like, let's take fluid mechanics and renewable energy and like the computer science and programming and STEM stuff that I like and see where all three of them intersect. And that happened to be fluid dynamics of offshore wind turbines. Wow. So one thing that most people don't know, though, is that Hannah wasn't always sold on doing a PhD. <laughs> so if you could maybe talk about like what made it's you true. decide to continue with research from doing a master's because we had a lot of discussions about this in our kitchen. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a very high drama time in my life. Um, my original plan when I had applied to grad school was to graduate with just a master's, just, just a master's, but to leave after, you know, two or three years with a master's degree. Because um, my plan has always been to go and work in the industry for, you know, a wind turbine developer or manufacturer. Um, but then... As I was going through the first year and a half of grad school, I was like, you know, this this isn't that bad. Like, I kind of like it, and I write, I like doing research. Um, so I started thinking, like, maybe I should stay, maybe I shouldn't. And then when I had applied for the NSF Graduate Research Fellowship, one of the conditions for getting that fellowship is that you are a PhD student. Mm. So when I won that fellowship, I was like, okay, I have the funding; it's available do I stay or do I turn down that funding and hope for the best on the um, industry job market? So I had a lot of like soul searching conversations with my housemates, um, with my advisors, as well as with um, a bunch of people in the industry who are there working in it. And I was like, hey, what does your job look like on the day to day? What does your job look like on the day to day? Which one does it sound like I would have more fun doing and which one requires a master's and which one requires a PhD? And it turned out that the kind of research and development work I was most interested in, really most places required you to have a PhD to do that. So I'm like, all right, I have the funding. A PhD is gonna get me the kind of job I think I want to do. So I'm gonna stick it out. And here I am three and a half years in. So nice. yeah. gonna, gonna finish it out strong. Hopefully. Cool. <laughs> can, nice. you, can you guys speak to, um, to younger girls who are maybe a little bit intimidated by science and math and Maybe you want to encourage them to just take the leap and... Yeah, I mean, go for it. If I think of science and math, I think in a lot of our, our school systems in particular, it can seem intimidating because um, it's all broken out into separate classes. And you're like, man, I can't, you know, I have a really hard time like memorizing the things for biology or like I just don't see how really like the chemicals work together in chemistry or physics is like that concept is just not sticking. But that's okay. Like, I'm terrible at chemistry, and I have no head for memorization. So, like, biology was, like, mm, not going so well. <laughs> but it's really about, like, finding the areas that you are good at and finding what interests you. And I think that if you have enough interest in it and you think it's cool and exciting, then you can definitely make it work. And, like, don't be discouraged if you know, one test goes badly. That doesn't mean that you're bad at math or science, just meant that that wasn't the unit for you. Yeah, for me, I would say that a lot of, I guess a lot of struggles I I find with women and young girls having interest in STEM comes from STEM just not being pitched in a way that would attract maybe somebody else, right? For me, 
I didn't really want to be an electrical engineer. I wanted to be a high school math teacher because I really loved math and I just liked numbers because I felt like English was too subjective because I always wanted to argue with the teacher about the grade I received, <laughs> right? Whereas in math, if the numbers work, then they work. And if they don't work, then they have to explain to me how I could have fixed it to make it better. Mm. Um, but then what made me stick with engineering was going to Malawi and actually seeing that I could have this really real impact on um, humans and people, right? The people part of engineering is what made me stay with it. And so with Girls, I would say that there are a lot of opportunities to do things that you love with engineering, math, and science. Like, for example, if you really love makeup, then the chemicals and the makeup of that makeup that you're putting on your face, it is designed in a way that you don't break out. Right? It's designed in a way that you're not going to have an allergic reaction. And there are researchers doing that type of work. Um, if you want to you know, change the world, Right. There are lots of companies run by really successful women that are looking at, you know, how do we bring clean water to people? How do we build things in a more fair and equitable way that are actually designed for women? Um, so there are just a lot of opportunities for you to change the world with science, engineering, math and the, you know, I guess more hard sciences. Mm. That reminds me of like the conversation we were having before we started um, about like design and how it bias creeps into design like we were talking about the self-driving cars and you know the concern about them not recognizing people of different colors um and i learned that uh test dummies are all men and so like you know so there's just all these plays that you're like oh if we had a more diverse set of people engineering these things you wouldn't wait until you know you had a disaster on your hands yeah or i mean like a terrible outcome right. from engineering to realize that these are things that you should think about right if you have a more diverse set of people planning those things in the first place they'll think about those things in a different way yeah and it's kind of nice the time that we're in because i think that people and like companies and institutions are starting to wake up to recognizing that if you want to be a world-class company or a world-class institution, you have to have a diverse set of students. It's not just women, it's minorities, it's you know people with dif different gender identities, with different religious identities, right? Because you wanna design products that are culturally relevant, but also accepted and usable by a wide range of people. Um, just like a simple example is I had an undergraduate student that for his senior design project, he was making a touchscreen desk. So he tested it out, he said it really worked and he was so excited to show it to me. So I went to this room to use the touchscreen desk and it wasn't working. And I was like, why is this desk not working? And he goes, oh, let me try it out. So then he tries it and it works. And then I tried again and I'm like, no, it's still not working. And he said, oh, that's weird. It only didn't work for you and one other person. And I was like, was that other person African-American? And he was like, oh my God, that guy was African-American. And it was because the sensor he was using was not recognizing dark skin tones, mm. right? So then the sensor company should have tested their sensor on a wide range of skin tones. And one time I was in the bathroom at an airport and the sinks would not work for me for these like touchless sinks, right? And the lady, she like did it and it worked. And then I did it and it didn't work. And I was like, can you just hold your hand there so I can use this sink and get the soap off my, my hands? <laughs> um, and I was just like, these sensors just weren't working for me. And so that's one of the fears I have about self-driving cars is that if 
you know, brown skin people aren't testing these, I don't want to get run over yeah. <laughs> anytime soon. Maybe so. that's the intention, but I'm just, <laughs> no, <laughs> dare yeah. I say, I'm just, you know. That's chilling though. Even just like the thought of like a thing not working for you, it's like, am I invisible to this technology? Like that's to so, the world, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's exactly. a little frustrating because you're just like, I don't want people to think I don't want to wash my hands. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, it's like, like, what do you even do then? Right? Yeah. Like you're like, unless you have like a white person there to be like, here, let me use my privileged skin to. Turn <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, what do you do? Like that's so messed up, and that's exactly the kind of engineering problems you run into when you're like. Okay, people just didn't think about that because. Yeah, and it's also a little embarrassing to have to ask for help to use a sink when I'm like, I want to explain to this person that I know how to use a sink perfectly well. <laughs> but <laughs> when it is whoever engineered that, that should be embarrassed, right? Yeah. That they did a bad design. But yeah, but then you as the user are the one affected. <laughs> Whew. Wow, there's a, like a lot of really impressive things that you both do. <laughs> you're both NSF graduate research fellows. Um, you're also the co-chairs for the Graduate Women in STEM Outreach Committee. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so yeah, the, the Graduate Women in STEM is a really great organization. Destiny kind of brought me into the fold there. Um, but so, so it has several committees, and we're, we kind of run the outreach committee this year. Um, and so the outreach committee is really focused on working with um, broader communities um, to get other people interested in STEM. Particularly our focus is on young women. Um, so we do a couple of different programs. One of them that Destiny mentioned was the um, Sound Bites program at Amherst Regional Middle School. So every Friday um, we bring a presenter, usually a member of GWIZ, Graduate Women in STEM, um, to present about her research to these middle schoolers. And so we try to make it fun, you know, maybe have an interactive game or like a bunch of pictures or a movie to like really tell them and communicate what their research is to these um, younger audience members who are really smart. The kids here, oh my gosh, they are brilliant and they ask such good questions. One thing we do to reach a broader audience is um, we run a Girl Scout badge workshop where so the past two that we've done is having Girl Scouts from the Massachusetts region come to the UMass campus and we'll work through a series of projects and mini tasks with them to earn their inventor badge. Right. So they get to kind of learn what inventors are. We all the women that help us are all grad students, so then we explain to them what we do and what we quote unquote inv invent, <laughs> and then we'll you know design like a transportation device to transport a paperclip down a string, right? And they get a lot of different materials like balloons and uh, tape and anything they want. Post -it really, notes. They love the post-it notes. <laughs> yeah, and then one girl was like, "Can't we just tilt the string?" And I was like, oh my God, this girl just like solved this thing <laughs> with none of the materials, but so she's really smart. And th so then we decided, okay, well, let's talk with them about how it would change if you could tilt the string versus if you had to keep the string horizontal and different design requirements of that. And then we have like a candy party problem where they have to like look at this supply chain of candy and they have to there's like un unwrappers of the candy then there's going to be the wrappers who have to put it in tissue paper then they have to 
like package it and they have to like look at you know what can make this go faster how can we increase the quality of our wrapping right and mm-hmm. girls are like add tape we need more tape you know <laughs> <laughs> so so that's always fun too just to get them to see that engineering doesn't necessarily have to be building cool cars right that it is just making things work better such as an inventory supply chain for this candy party problem I think my favorite moments doing stuff with the outreach committee is just when it goes from a girl saying like, oh, this is really hard. And I'm like, yeah, it is, but that's okay. Let's try again and see what happens. And then it goes from, this is really hard to, I get it, that's so cool, this is fun. And I was like, yes, welcome. Welcome to the sisterhood. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Wow, I didn't even know they got inventor's badges. Wow, I thought just they made cookies and that was the... Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. They've actually in- included a lot more STEM badges now, too. Oh, cool. There's, like, water badges mm-hmm. and computer science badges wow. now. Oh. So they're really up in their game over the Girl Scouts. Well, right. <laughs> nice. um, I think it might be a good time to transition to the last part of our show, but I want to just give you the chance if anything didn't come up about your research or your work or anything else that you wanted to talk about that didn't come up. I just want to say thanks to my advisor, Dr. Erin Baker. She's been a great support system, and my research couldn't have been done without her. So I don't want to leave her out of the acknowledgments. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, my advisors, um, David Schmidt and Matt Lackner, as well as um, some of the folks over at the National Renewable Energy Lab, where I did an internship last summer. Um, they really helped guide me through this process, and it's been great working with them all. Nice. Yeah, and I have to shout out Argonne National Lab, too. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to shout out my parents. Always, always a good choice. Okay, so the last part of our show is a little game that I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, And my guests have provided me with some acronyms from their fields, and we're going to try to make him guess what they mean. God. She asked me for some paper before we started because she knew this was coming. I forgot. (laughs) Oh, you forgot that wasn't what the paper was. (laughs) Damn. Okay, so... Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so your first acronym is from Destiny. It's MCDM. Um, MCDM. God, what is it? It's multi-criteria decision making. Okay, did we so even, you... did we even say that? Did you say that? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Laura's so um... hateful. Jesus Christ. <laughs> So, I didn't come up with this acronym. I just read it. So multi-criteria decision-making is when you have different goals that you want to achieve, and you have to make a decision on those things. So, for example, when you're building out a power system, you wanted to have low greenhouse gas emissions, low cost, high number of jobs. So all these things are different criteria. So it's multiple criteria, and then you have to do this, the decision-making. Gotcha. Now give me a tennis acronym now. <laughs> I feel like that could be useful in a lot of parts of life. Yeah, it can be applied to a lot of different things. It's all about knowing your stakeholders, what they care about, what are their criteria, and then kind of what decisions are they trying to make. Hmm. Okay, we're going to move on um, to some of Hannah's acronyms. The first one is OWT. Mm. This is to do, she's wind, right? So Wait, what? She's wind. So, um... Oh, and she does simulations on computers. Focus on that first part that you said. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and the um, she has the things that are uh, we can't build on the ground, right? This the the sea floors, right? Because they're too deep. The water's too deep. Yeah. And the ones on top, the floating ones. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, God. 
Hannah, I don't know. <laughs> so, so you have wind for the okay. middle one. Yes, I yeah, definitely yeah. know I feel like wind. this acronym might have been come up in the last episode you did, too. That's a little it hint, tol- too. It totally, and that was 30 years ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay, just tell me. I know that's wind, so what is it? Yeah, it's offshore wind turbine. Okay, turbine. Yes, of course. She did say that. Cool. Well, I think that's the end of our show. Thank you so much for coming in, you guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yay! This was fun, Laura. Thanks. It was fun. I always learn something here. This is great. <laughs> Hashtag engineering. All right. <laughs> Hashtag comedy. <laughs> you just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today were Destiny Knock from Industrial Engineering and Hannah Jollis from Mechanical Engineering. My co-host was comedian Kim DeShields, a.k.a. Boney. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is provided by the Emmerich Labs in the Polymer Science Department. Don't forget to check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, Twitter, all your social media, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Keep it locked for WMUA News coming right up.